Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 27. We're going to read chapter 27 and 28 in portions this morning, not all of it, but if you were with us last week, you're like, wow, 27 and 28? No, it's portions. If you were with us last week, we uh, talked about the tabernacle. And in talking about the tabernacle, the point which is so obvious is that the Lord overcomes every obstacle in order to be able to dwell with his people. Chapter 27, this is a description of the outer court of the tabernacle. Chapter 28 describes what the priests will wear as they serve before the Lord. I want to give you two reminders. I would always encourage you to read all of the text uh, because it's all God's word. Uh, we have to fit this into the time that we have, and so I'll use selected portions. This is still what you'd call systematic expository preaching. We go to the text, we find what's there, we pull it out. There are times that you can walk through a forest and understand the forest best by walking along a path. There's other times that you can understand the forest best by taking a plane and flying a little bit higher over it. That'll be our approach today. Chapter 27, we're going to begin with verse 1. These are the instructions that the Lord gives to build an altar. 27.1, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive the ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. Now next, he explains the courtyard and he explains uh, the entrance into which that courtyard will sit. So we skip down to verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits and the breadth 50 and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze and all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Now then you move to chapter 28. Uh, you get instructions on the priest and what he will wear. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And then the instruction next is the ephod, which we'll look at. That's the main garment uh, underlying the outer gar garments. Verse 6 picks up. You shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. Now skip down to verses 9, and we'll read through verse 12. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their, their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth, 
as a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The next part that's discussed is, is called a breast piece of judgment. And so we skip down to verse 17. At verse 17, we learn about this piece. It says, You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And then you skip down to verse 29 to find out the significance of that. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. The priest also has a a decoration on the hem of his garment. You skip down to verse 33 to learn about that. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. And then there's a plate, verse 36, engraved with the phrase, holy to the Lord. Where do you put that plate? Verse 38 tells us, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regular, it shall regularly, easy for me to say, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Here is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we ask for the ministry of your spirit. We pray that you would grant to your people ears to hear your word and to understand it. And we ask that you would again use a fallible, fallen man, frail and weak, to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word, which speaks. Let us hear. Amen. I'm reminded of this giant cabinet that existed in my parents' living room when I was a child. It's about three feet high, and and it was six or seven feet long. My dad made it himself, and he stained it a really sweet 1970s avocado green. The cabinet was so large that it was really the prominent piece of furniture that anybody saw when they walked into the living room. I don't know if decorators would call that a statement piece or a conversation piece, but it certainly seemed to make a statement. 
It certainly was a point of conversation. Anybody who entered my house soon figured out that my dad enjoyed music because his record player was in there and all his records and then that stereo and speakers. But that my dad also liked woodworking. I have to believe that if there was a statement piece in the courtyard of the tabernacle of God, then it would be this giant bronze altar. That is a hollow wooden box that stands four and a half feet tall, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. It's a big, giant box that's a square, and it's made of bronze. It's got a grill made of bronze on the top and on the sides. And this is the altar. And what a statement it made to all those who entered. Outside the court, you couldn't see the altar, but you would constantly see the smoke billowing up. You'd smell the, the smell of burning animal flesh. I mentioned last week, very few people will ever enter the, the tabernacle. But most of God's people at this time will come into the outer courts. And here's a piece that sits in the very center of the court and it makes a loud statement. And here's the statement. To those in the outer court, God preaches a message of comfort. So we're going to break down our passage with two points. The courtyard and the clothing. Start with the courtyard. In the courtyard, the the message is simply this. Understand your state and identify with your sacrifice. That's what God is trying to say here. First, understand your state. I mentioned each structure in the tabernacle and outside is an image which is meant to communicate something important. So here's the courtyard. And in that sense, it's really an invitation to come and worship. It preaches that God desires his people to come together and worship. They're not to worship privately in their homes. They're not to worship up on some mountaintop with a tree stump sitting there and singing to the Lord. The courtyard says God loves corporate worship. One whole people who come together and bring sacrifices. They cook them on the altar. In a sense, they they give a portion to the Lord. They eat together themselves. And so the heart of what's here is that, that with honest humility, the people of God embrace this picture of a substitute that will atone for my sins. So here's the courtyard, which preaches an invitation. And yet this big, fat altar expresses the problem and it also appeals for a solution because the moment the Hebrew people enter the courtyard the altar confronts them with a very loud statement it's not really until you get to the first five chapters of Leviticus that you begin to understand what is the statement that this message is making well the first five chapters tell us there's five kinds of sacrifices and all of those sacrifices are going to be done on this altar the burnt offering alone which is explained in Leviticus 1 illustrates the point there's going to be a very large animal sacrificed on this thing it's going to cook and burn in the morning and you're going to come back and do it again later in the evening One scholar explains it like this. The worshiper brings the animal without defect to the priest. He's raised the animal himself or he's bought it with his own money. So it really does cost him something. In fact, it's a sacrifice in the modern sense of the word. 
The worshiper then lays his hands on the head of the animal and he signifies that the sins of me and my whole family are placed upon this animal. His death is what I deserve. Then the worshiper with his own knife slices the throat of the animal and kills it. And then the priest takes over, spilling blood on the altar, burning the animal. God has carried out his wrath on the animal in your place. And the volume, the volume is what makes the sound so loud. I'm not talking about the sound of the sacrifices. I'm talking about the number of the sacrifices. Tribe after tribe, family after family, person after person, day after day, year after year, God said, there must always be a fire burning on this altar. It needs to keep going. And so you add to that this twice daily sacrifice. Leviticus 2, 3, 4, and 5 explains the rest of them. There's going to be a grain offering. That's going to be a fellowship offering. There's going to be a sin offering. There's going to be a guilt offering. And this is going to exist on the altar for more than a thousand years. That is millions upon millions upon millions of animals slain and blood spilled and burned. And those of you who are going like this, you should go like that. Because it's a bloody mess. And it's intentional. One writer said, by summarizing the image, there it stood, ever smoking, ever bloodstained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew that might wish to approach it, the sinner having forfeited his own life by sin, another life that is an innocent life must be given in his stead. So the courtyard is here preaching an invitation, come and and worship the Lord, and yet the altar explains the problem pouring through the pages of the Old Testament, all of this blood. It's meant to overwhelm. Millions of animals sacrificed as a powerful witness to the doctrine of total depravity. You see, in seeing the problem, God says you must understand your state. All that blood... So you and I would walk away going, oh, the sin really is that serious. Postmodern people will say, look, if God is so great and so good and so loving, then he would accept me as I am for who I am. One person believes that they're good enough. She supposes that her works are so good that they would outweigh all the bad stuff. Surely God's going to welcome me. Another person, he presumes, that God should be kind. He, could be, he should be the kind of, of God who just welcomes everyone as if repentance is absolutely unnecessary. As if peasants get to tell the king what kind of king he ought to be. Standing in the courtyard, taking in the sights, the sounds, the smell of the altar. You could never come to that kind of conclusion. This giant altar constantly burns animals to tell you your sins are really much worse than you think they are. It's helpful for Christians 
on this side of the cross to consider this image as well. Because the Old Testament is streaming with blood to testify that sin corrupts every part of me. Body, mind, soul, your sin is no small problem. You could say that the courtyard and its burning altar of blood and smoke and fire, well, it's just not seeker-sensitive. God doesn't seem to take into account how this might hurt your feelings to find out that the situation is so bad. The image are meant to send a message. So even if the images change, the message actually doesn't. What's the message? His splendor and holiness. God can't dwell in the presence of sin. In fact, he's under no obligation to those who rebel against his rule, to those who are traitors in his kingdom. If you don't know Christ, you may not think that's who you are, but this courtyard and this altar preaches that's actually precisely who you are. Outside of Christ, you are separated from God. God wants his people, them, and also you to understand your state so that you will begin to identify with your sacrifice. Here's what I mean. In placing your hands on the head of the lamb, the worshiper was coming, confessing the sins of himself and of his family. God is teaching them the concept of a substitute and also the necessity that my sins must die with that substitute. Everybody understands the concept of a substitute. That's really simple. My sins are so severe, they are so offensive to God that I deserve to die for my own sins. If I would live, someone or something must die in my place. And so a bull, a goat, a lamb dies to atone to pay for my sins. And theologians would call that substitutionary atonement. But to be clear, all that means is I don't die. In fact, that doesn't bring me to God. Because it doesn't make me morally good. So the other part of identifying with my sacrifice is not just simply the substitute idea but the symbolism that my sins are actually being put to death in this animal. My pride is paid for, but it also died with the lamb. My bitterness is paid for, but it also dies with the lamb. My adulterous heart, my sexual immorality, my greed, my anger, they're paid for, but they also died with the lamb. And so the image, from here forward, I'll live as if I really did die to those sins. So something died in your place. Your sins also died with the sacrifice. But none of that is of any moral value unless you can from here forward suddenly somehow change your ways and begin to live a new life as a perfectly obedient child of God. Because even if you walk away from the morning sacrifice with, with a sense that your sins have been paid for, you actually still haven't earned the favor of God by your obedience. I'll borrow from an old illustration from R.C. Sproul. If your sin was a hole in the ground, 
The sacrifices might make you get the sense that the blood and the animals were filling up that hole so that I'm morally on flat ground with the Lord. But the flat ground is a far cry from the heights of Mount Sinai where the only way I can climb the heights of Mount Sinai and be in the presence of God is a perfect obedience to his Ten Commandments in mind and heart and actions. To put it in financial terms, not being in debt is not the same as being rich. So even if the morning sacrifice left me with a sense that my sins were paid for, my life keeps proving that even though I died to those sins in the morning, I'm actually still committing them this afternoon. So I got to go back. And the cycle is tedious. You know that because if you've ever read Leviticus, you go, this feels tedious to read it. Imagine how tedious it was to live it. And so this altar constantly burned. And it proclaimed, number one, the severity of your sins. It proclaimed, number two, God's willingness to accept a substitute. Number three, your longing that your sins would actually die with the lamb. And number four, a continual testimony that it's still not enough. Why? Why isn't enough? Because you still don't have inherent goodness of your own to welcome you into the presence of God. And so the fact that you come back again and again and again with more sacrifices is a testimony that these stupid animals don't have any moral value. But neither do your feeble efforts at goodness. All of this would have felt like paying off an IOU with another IOU. And it would have left worshipers longing for something better for a thousand years. Which is why the writer to the Hebrews says in what we think is so succinct, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But if you've heard that, you wonder, now why is it impossible for all that blood not to just take away sins? Because no matter how much you love that lamb, no matter how much you love that that cattle that was raised in your herd, your pets, these animals do not offer a moral value to God because they don't have souls Therefore, they've not actually struggled with temptation and yet battled through the temptation to be obedient to their creator who made them. They don't come on the other side and reign victorious as obedient sheep. They just live. They have no moral value. Which is why Hebrews 10 goes on to explain how God provided a sacrifice that was of sufficient moral value. And the writer to the Hebrews speaks as though Jesus says these words entering into the world. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, Jesus said, Here I am written in the scroll 
I've come to do the will of my God. You see, friends, Jesus provides moral value to the sacrifice by his perfect obedience. And then he takes that perfect obedience and he spreads his arms on the cross and gives himself up as a substitute to pay for your sins. And it is a substitute of infinite moral goodness. By faith, your sins are laid upon him. By faith, his righteousness is actually given to you. So the courtyard and the altar preach the same message to you as it did to them. This courtyard preaches an invitation. God desires his people to come, to know him, to worship him, to love him, to enjoy him. And then this altar explains the problem. Even while it appeals for a solution, your sins actually are more severe than you dared imagine. And yet God has provided a sacrifice. It is Jesus, God's own son. So what's the substance of Christianity? Faith in Jesus Christ means that you identify with this one perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. You might say in a figurative sense, faith is spiritually placing your hands on his head confessing your sins he's been slain as your substitute so that you are not eternally cast outside of the courtyard because Jesus placed himself on God's altar as a full and final payment for sins but more than that Jesus takes your death and he gives you his righteousness his true moral goodness that you could never earn. If you already know Jesus, God still summons you to identify with your sacrifice. Because you know this, your sins whisper to you that your identity is what you've done. Your sins tell you that your identity is how you failed in the past. The evil one wants you to think that too. So that you will suffer as if you were unloved and hopeless and stuck. Number one, God wants you to, to so identify with the sacrifice of Christ that you constantly cling to the moral value of Jesus like it really was enough. So that if you wonder how the Lord looks at you, you immediately take comfort in the moral perfection of Christ. How does God look at you? Like a perfectly obedient son. Number two, you identify with this sacrifice. Your identity is bound up in it so much that your sins really did die in him. And even when you do sin, you are not your sins. You are not your past. You are a new creation. So how can a giant grill with burning animal flesh be a comfort? Because Christ died there and your sins died with him. To those in the outer court, God 
preaches a message of comfort. So the courtyard and now the clothing, everybody who's been here knows, second point is never as long as the first. From the clothing of the priest, you learn that God carries his people, God cares for his people, and God comforts his people. First, God carries his people. This is that picture of those jewels on the shoulder of the priest. Two stones. On one, the first six names of the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali. On the other shoulder, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Take a look at verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So the high priest takes the names of God's people on his shoulders and he carries their names into the presence of God. The message? Not only does your high priest remember God's people, but God himself sees the names of his people sitting on the shoulders of the high priest. And what is it that upholds the shoulders of the high priest? It's the arms of the priest. If we're just talking about Aaron, that would be, well, that's kind of cool. Except Aaron is not the full, final high priest. The Bible says you have a greater high priest. Jesus carries his people on his shoulders. He carries the names of God's people on his shoulders. And he carries them right into the presence of the Father in heaven. And oh, by the way, he upholds you along the way. Which is why the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are his everlasting arms. Isaiah 46, verse 4. Even in your graying years, I will bear you. I've done it. I'll carry you. So I wonder in what area of your life you need to remember that God carries you on the shoulders of Jesus. What struggles, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, where the clothing of the priest actually confirms you are not on your own. Jesus carries his people. Your name is on his shoulders He upholds you by those same everlasting arms that spread apart in order to hang on a cross. And he who carried your name even to death, he can surely carry you in this life. God carries his people. God also cares for his people. This is the breast piece. Sits over top of the chest of the priest. The shoulder pieces carried six names each. But over the heart of the priest, there's 12 stones, and each stone is precious in value, which is why I actually took the time to read things like diamond and sapphire and amethyst and emerald. And each name has an individual name of the tribes of Israel. Look at verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Do you think that God actually needs help remembering the names 
of his people? Of course not. No, the breast piece reminds us that God's people lie close to the heart of the high priest, to the heart of Christ. And so just as each stone on the breast piece is different, each person who belongs to Christ is different and they're unique and they're precious to him. And each one of them is called by a name. And those who Jesus loves, he treats with an individual kind of tenderness. It's really just a reminder that God cares for you personally. So I'm not sure what you're facing, but it might be helpful to see your circumstances not through the lens of pain and trial, but with the certainty that your name is close to the heart of Christ. God carries his people. God cares for his people. Finally, God comforts his people. Those bells attached to the hem of the garments the priest wore. Verse 34, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. See, those bells were actually meant to be a sound of of comfort because when the priest is coming out and they can hear the bells ringing, the message is really clear. God has accepted the sacrifice of the high priest. We're good. There's actually hope. And you don't hear bells this morning. Why don't you hear bells? You no longer have to hear bells. Because the sacrifice of the high priest has been accepted fully and finally. No more bells. And yet the certainty of the message of those bells is more clear today than it was for them. My great high priest has offered a full, final, perfect sacrifice and it's been fully accepted by God. So that you and I in Christ are fully accepted by God. How does a big, giant, burning altar and the decorations of a priest that seems overly adorned provide comfort to people who want to draw near to Christ? Because they're all pointing to Christ. Let's give thanks to God. Lord Jesus, you are present in both these pictures, and we give you thanks. For though our sin would make us terrified to draw near to you, in Christ we see that you have made it possible. More than that, you've welcomed us. And so we ask that you would bind this truth to our hearts, that we might know you and enjoy you and love you and worship you. For you have paid for our sins and made us lovely. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.